Our text this morning will be the first nine verses of Luke 13. As we continue to hear our Lord Jesus Christ teaching to the disciples and to the crowds. This is the very word of God. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they perished in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others that lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig round it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Have you ever had the experience of explaining something to another person, perhaps instructions on how to do something. And about halfway through, the person you're talking to decides they know what you're going to say and they know what's involved and they finish your conversation for you. Except for often there's one problem. They didn't really know what you were going to say and they jumped to a conclusion and were not willing to listen. I think this is what is happening to our Lord Jesus this morning. And if we're not careful, it can happen to us as we treat the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus has been speaking to the crowds, and this morning He's going to teach us about repentance, about the necessity of repentance, about the nature of repentance, and about the grace that is provided in repentance. And so, as we listen to our Lord teaching, let us be careful not to jump to conclusions as to what does and does not apply to us. Let's begin then by looking at Jesus speaking to the crowds about the necessity of repentance. Now, Jesus has been teaching his disciples in the crowds for some time now. Throughout all of chapter 12, for example, he has been telling the crowds that they need to be ready for his return, that he is going to return, and if they are not ready, 
it will not go well for them. And then he told them that this is because when he speaks the gospel, it actually brings division. It divides between those who believe and those who will not. And so as he speaks to them, he says, when I return, you must make sure that you are trusting in me and you are on the right side, as it were, of that division. And then he challenges the crowd. He says, you know everything you think about the times. You can tell when it's going to rain. You can tell when it's going to be hot. You know all of the times, but you don't discern the most important things. You don't discern spiritual times. Now, I think it's at this point that Jesus gets interrupted. Luke describes it, but perhaps we could think about it in a little bit more colorful fashion. Jesus is explaining that they don't know about the times, they're not as spiritual as they should be, and they should pay attention to him. And before he could press the point home, someone yells out from the crowd, Amen, Jesus! Tell us! We discern the times. You know, it's like when those Galileans, they were out in the temple, and they got killed by Pilate. You know, those rotten, wicked, nasty Galileans. Not good people like you and me, Jesus. We discern the times. We know what we're supposed to look for. If they would have known, then they wouldn't have gotten killed. But they were too busy being wicked. They're so unlike us. I wish they would have been more faithful in church. I wish they would have read their Bible more. I wish they would be well, more like me, Jesus. Then maybe that wouldn't have happened to them. You see, they're proving Jesus' point. They think they understand the times... And they recount this story. It's a story of an atrocity that comes into their midst. Something that would have shocked their sensibilities. For many of us, Pilate seems to be, from our reading of the accounts at the end of the Gospels, quite frankly, if if we were to have one word to describe Pilate, it would probably be a wimp. He can't make any decisions. He doesn't know what to do. He's very hesitant. But that's not the pilot of history. The pilot of history was a butcher. Anytime he thought there was a rebellion underway, he massacred people. He thought nothing of killing to get his way. And that's what we see here. Galileans who were renowned for being rebels, for being a bit feisty, had come probably at the Passover to come and offer sacrifices of animals. And Pilate gave his soldiers instructions to fall upon them and to kill them all. And they did it in such a shocking and public and bloody way that actually the blood of the victims rolled down and mingled together with the blood of the sacrifices. Horrible. Sacrilege beyond belief. Perhaps the only way for us to think about how horrible and horrifying this would be would be if On July 4th, Al-Qaeda burst into the halls of government and massacred Americans on July 4th and then pulled down and ripped up the stars and stripes and raised the flag of the Islamic State. You could imagine that would be something that would be talked about for some period of time. It's a horrible, sacrilegious kind of event. How could this possibly have happened 
The people wonder how could something as horrible, such a travesty as this butchery have happened. They come to what they think is an obvious conclusion. It's the Galileans' fault. You see, they're bad people. They must have some horrible secret sin. They probably cheat on their wives. They probably steal from the temple. They probably beat old people and children. Who knows what it is, but it has to be horrible if they suffered this fate. You see, this is bad theology running down the street. It's something that the Bible is actually full of, examples that need to be corrected. It's like if you had Job's friends for your friends. When you were sick, they said, well, you must be doing something rotten on the side. I'm sure you're a miserable sinner. It's like the blind man that Jesus sees and his disciples come to him and say, well, he's blind. We know somebody must have sinned that made him blind. Was it him or was it his parents? You see, it is taking a partial truth and holding on to it and taking it where it never was intended to go. It certainly is true that there are occasions when people who sin and make bad decisions suffer for that. When we sin in certain fashions, marriages break up. Households are destroyed. Relationships are harmed. Oftentimes, finances can be in trouble. But the problem is, just because sin results in suffering, we cannot claim the principle that all suffering is the direct result of sin and is a proportional result of sin. You see, the problem with this is not just in the theology, it's in how we live our lives because the advantage to thinking that way is we look at ourselves and say, haven't been butchered yet in church. Must be pretty good. My car hasn't blown up. My roof hasn't caved in. I must be a pretty good person And God must love me. You see, what happens is we look and see the absence of bad things as verification that we are not sinners, that we do not need repentance, that we do not need to face a holy God. This can often happen even in churches that decry against the twin bad theology of prosperity. You know, the the prosperity gospel that says, if you're really faithful and really good, God will give you two Cadillacs, a vacation home, and a large 401k. And if you don't have that, well, you must not be very faithful. It's the people on television telling you, you can have your best life now if only you do the right things and God always rewards the good. Except for here, the principle is, God always and only punishes the bad. It makes us feel safe, doesn't it? As we look at our own lives, and as long as nothing really bad happens, we can objectively be verified that we are on the right path. But Jesus' answer is insightful. He says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because of what they suffered? He says, do you think no one else is like them? 
Is that what you believe? No, no. But unless you repent, you will perish just like them. Now think of the shock that might be. Would that come home to me? Could I have that horrible thing happen to me? You see, what Jesus wants us to do is to not begin with blaming the sinner. He uses vivid language to push us away from this. He says, do you honestly think that they are above and beyond all other sinners? And notice how Jesus very concisely draws all of us in. Those Galileans are sinners like all of us. Not like some of us. Not like a few of us. Jesus proclaims baldly the universality of sin. That sin is something we all struggle with. That we all deserve punishment and death for. How do you deflect your own sin? Do you say to yourself, well, I'm not as bad as the guy down the street. My life is more in tune. My children are better behaved. I'm a better steward of my finances. I don't really need to worry about these issues. The problem is that a travesty just brings to light the fact that all of us fall short of the glory of God. And there's a second story that Jesus deals with. I think, again, perhaps he is interrupted. Someone else is sure that they can discern the times. And they say, Jesus, you're right. We need to discern the times. It's like that tower that fell on those 18 people in the middle of Jerusalem. They must have been wicked, rotten people. Otherwise, why didn't it hit someone else? Why those 18? Someone else might say, well... I'm not sure that those people are to blame. I think maybe God is to blame. Why would they randomly be killed? You know, the Galileans, at least, we might be able to say they were asking for it. They were rebels against Pilate. They were probably loudmouths. But these 18 people, what causes them to be destroyed? It's like a natural disaster that we see. When our children ask us, Why did a tsunami kill so many people in Asia? Why do earthquakes happen? Why did that tornado go through the town and knock down all those houses and kill those people? Why did that man last week die in his car buried under an avalanche of snow? Isn't God aware of what's going on? Somebody has to be to blame for this, and and it seems so random, doesn't it? So there's a rush to blame God. And when we do this, we compromise the character of God. Some want to answer that question, that probing question that so often comes from children that is so hard to answer by saying, well, I just don't think God knows everything. I'm sure if he would have known that the tower was not sound, he would have helped. I'm sure if God would have known that that tsunami was coming, he would have been good. He must just not be able to understand and know everything. And so in trying to defend God, we make him not God. Others might say, well, no, I think he knows these things, but he's, he's limited in his power. God can't do everything. He can't be everywhere at once. He can't save every person. So, 
This must have just been an area that God couldn't get to. So again, in defending God, we make him not God. We say he's not as powerful as he really is. Others will go still further and say, well, it must be that God's just not good. If God were good, there would never be a hurricane. There would never be a tornado. There would never be a fire that kills anyone. There would never be a random disaster. If God were really good, because he's powerful and because he knows, he would stop all of these things. Others will go the furthest extent and say, this is evidence that God doesn't even exist. How do we answer this question? It's a difficult one, isn't it? It's not something that we can answer flippantly. But I think Jesus gives us the answer. The answer is that those that the tower fell on deserved it. Not because they were worse than us, but because they're exactly like us. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Everyone is under a condemnation of death. That every instance of disaster and murder is a result of sin. The sin that permeates our world, permeates our lives. Every disaster is evidence of the wrath of God. Not against a particular person for a particular action, but against a holy, but a a holy God's wrath against sin. And if we look at this, it tells us more about ourselves than we think at first glance. Because you see, the truth of this is the answer to both questions. Who is to blame for the crime? Who is to blame for the disaster? The truth is, is that we need to look to our own hearts. We're asking the wrong question if we ask, what did they do to deserve it? What Jesus wants us to ask is a question of ourselves. Why did this not happen to me? I deserve this. Why was I spared? You see, Jesus wants us to look at our own lives and our own sin and our own need to repent before a holy God. Because you see, all that is required to blame other people for their own sin is to say, I'm a little bit better than they are. And all that is required to blame God for disasters is to say, I think I'm pretty good. It all begins with our assessment of ourselves. And once we see and realize that travesties and tragedies, murders and disasters are just punctuated times, they bring our attention to the great truth that the death rate in the world is 100%. Think about it. It's not that the only people who die, die in earthquakes and tsunamis. It's not that the only people that die are those who are wicked and involved in bad practices and get killed or murdered. No, the death rate is 100% because the sin rate is 100%. We all deserve and will get death. But what Jesus wants us to do is to look at our own need to escape that judgment, 
to escape that death. And that is found in His Word and in His call to repent. Jesus says to those people in this day, and He says it to you today, repent or you will perish. You see the distinction? You will not perish if you repent. Now, what does this mean then? Obviously, Jesus has gotten our attention because if we don't want to perish, if we don't want to be murdered, if we don't want to be swallowed up, if we don't want to taste the bitter cup of death, then we must repent. What does it look like? Well, there are many, many false models of repentance. For some, repentance is just the amount of tears that we shed. For others, it is saying we're sorry that someone else misunderstood what we did. I'm sorry if you misunderstood what I did and therefore you were offended. Of course, what I did was fine. But if you misunderstood, then I'm sorry. That's not real repentance. Crying crocodile tears is not real repentance. Real repentance consists of three things. It consists of confession contrition, and change. Now, what do I mean by confession? Confession does not just mean bringing up sorrow. It doesn't even primarily mean an act of contrition. What confession means at its core, the word means to speak together with someone else. That's why we could also confess our faith. We speak together about something. And what confession means is not just saying, I did wrong. What confession means is, I speak together with God. God declares that He is holy, and I agree. God declares that His law is perfect, and I agree. God declares that I am bound to keep 100% of the law, and I agree. God declares that I have sinned, broken His law, and deserve eternal damnation for my rebellion. And I agree. I say together with God that I am guilty and that I need a Savior. The second thing that confession, or excuse me, that Repentance is involved with this contrition. That is, being sorry for our sins. Now, repentance is not only sorrow, but it does contain sorrow. We are grieved by our sin. If we truly understand who God is, and all that He has given to us, and all that He has done, and that we have rebelled against Him, then we are grieved by that. We are truly sorry. Not... Sorry that we got caught. That's an easy concept for us to understand, isn't it? We've all lived there at one point or another. When we've had to say that we're sorry to our parents or to a sibling or to a child. And really we're very sorry that it ever came up and that we got caught. And we wish it had never happened. But that's very different than being sorry for sinning against a holy God for hurting others. That kind of sorrow is a grieving that we say to ourselves, we never want to do that again. What hedges can we put up to stop ourselves from doing that? 
It grieves us to think about the pain that we have caused others. You see, godly sorrow worries about the suffering and pain we have inflicted on others, not about the sorrow that we feel because we are pained by the fact that we have been caught. It's contrition. Confessing to God, agreeing with Him that we are indeed sorrowful for all that we have done and that we have left undone. You see, it is too easy to deny our sin. We make excuses for ourselves, don't we? I'm sorry I did that, but I was tired. Tiredness is to blame. I'm sorry I did that, but you did say this, so you're to blame. I'm sorry that I did this, but I was in a difficult circumstances. Uh, God is to blame. We deflect the blame that truly should fall upon ourselves because you see... We are the ones most in need of repentance. As you sit in church pews and you look around, you must understand that the person most in need of daily repentance is not the wicked, vile sinner out there. It's the person you look at in the mirror. That is the person that you are in control of. That is the person that needs to examine their own soul. And you see, when we repent, it requires us to act. A false view of repentance has really come over the years through a mistranslation. The the word for repent in the Greek was translated into Latin, the earliest Bibles, as penance. You know, acts that show how sorrowful you are. You've all heard the stories of how many prayers you have to say, how many miles you have to walk, how many things you have to do to truly show you are sorry for your sin. There's only one problem. That's completely the wrong definition of the word. The word for to repent in the Greek, the word for repent that Jesus uses, the word for repent in our common language is to change to change one's mind, to change one's will, to turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus. Repentance is something that encompasses the whole man. That just as we have mind, emotion, and will, we must repent in all of those aspects. We must, with our mind, confess our sin. We must, with our emotions, be contrite for our sin. And we must, with our wills, choose to leave our sin and follow the Savior. This is why repentance is actually related to conversion. The Bible says that when you are converted, that when you go from death to life, that when you enter into the family of God, you do so by believing, by faith. But you also do so by repenting. Faith and repentance are twin evangelical graces. No one has faith who does not repent. No one repents who does not have faith. They are bound up together because, you see, to follow Jesus is to stop following your own way. To follow Jesus is to forsake sin and lawlessness and to have Jesus as your Savior and your King. That's what real repentance is is it is leaving our sin behind and following God. Martin Luther understood this. 
You know, the guy that started the Reformation? The very first of his 95 theses was this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are a repenter. You're not past repenting. No matter how well you think you are following the Lord Jesus, repentance is a daily part of the Christian's life. And then Jesus gives us a story, a parable, to help illustrate what this means. He tells of a fig tree that is in a good plot of land. And for three years it's checked for fruit. This is what fig trees do. They produce fruit for food. And for three years there is nothing. And the owner says, we don't have a lot of land around here. This is Israel. There's a lot of desert, a lot of rocks. We cannot let this worthless tree take up the space. Cut it down. Start over. You see, Jesus is emphasizing here that there is a judgment. A judgment that comes from a failure to show fruit. That if we profess that we are the Lord Jesus Christ's, that it must show in our lives that our repentance must be visible to ourselves and to others. It is not something that we can take for granted. We cannot just go along and as long as bad things don't happen, assume we are fine. Jesus commands you to bear fruit. The owner has every reason to remove this fig tree. But what happens? There's an intervention here. The vine dresser comes and he says, well, sir, let's give it one more year. And I'm not sure that this tree can do it on its own, so I'm going to dig around it. And I'm going to lay some fertilizer. And then next year, let's see with all of the effort that I put forward in, let's see if this tree bears fruit. And there's again a picture here for us. That as much as we want to repent, as much as repentance is required of each and every person in the world, the only way that we can repent is by the intervention of the mediator. We are like trees that cannot bear fruit. We are commanded to bear fruit and we cannot. And the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who commands us to repent, comes to us in grace and equips us with repentance. Now notice the effort that is being made here. It is a positive effort by the vine dresser. He doesn't just wait to see what happens. He is active and involved in the life of this tree. And there are two things that he does. The first is a bit scary for us. The first is the digging out of the roots. Now, this would be difficult if you were a tree. You would be unstable. Think about all of the solid ground that's being moved around. Think as the the dirt is being digged over and over and over again that occasionally the shovel is going to hit a root and that's going to hurt. This is like the providence of God in our lives. When He knows we need repentance, He sends us hard providences. Things like sickness. Things like deaths in our families. 
Things like financial hardship. These are hard things to bear, aren't they? But what Jesus is saying to you today is, when you see hard and sorrowful providences, do not say, oh, woe is me. Why is this happening to me? It's happening to you because it should happen to everyone. Ask yourself the question, what is God trying to teach me in this? How can I grow closer to God, not farther away from God, through this, through a hard providence? But then there's a second thing that our Lord describes, and that is, the nourishment that is put around the tree, that it might get all of the elements it needs and it might grow and flourish. And this is also what Jesus does for us. Think of the nourishment that comes to you from the gospel, the nourishment that comes from reading the word of God, the nourishment that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit, putting a fire in you that otherwise would not exist. And ask yourself this question, how are you applying in your life the fruit of the Spirit? How does peace, joy, apply in your life? How does that encourage you to grow closer to the Lord? How does it encourage you to kill your sin more and more? How does it encourage you to seek forgiveness from others more and more? This is the work of the living God. The final thing we see is a warning where Jesus exposes a presumption that we too often have. (coughs) He says, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You see, this is just a stay of execution. It is not an acquittal. You see, so often... When we escape difficulties or hardships, we go back into our state of being half asleep toward God. How many of you remember the aftermath of 9-11? And all of the articles, all of the claims that there would be a spiritual revival in America because of it. Because finally people would wake up that they could be in an office building and be killed in an act of war. Finally, people would seek the Lord, and churches would be full, and people would pray, and they would seek revival. How's that going for you now? Was it six months or a year before people forgot? Completely. If anything, we haven't seen revival. We've seen us go further down a spiral of rebellion and death. You see, the problem is, is those who are not gripped by the love of Jesus, those who do not have all of their faith and trust in the Lord, they may be shocked by a tragedy. They may be awoken by a travesty, but they go back to sleep because their repentance isn't real. Jesus is calling upon you to see the date of execution. And to escape it now, not someday, not on the if come, but now to seek him, to repent and believe and be changed. Jesus has made it clear that the way of escape is not open forever. It may be that today is the day of salvation for you. And for the Christian, each and every day is a day to draw closer to God. To confess our sins. 
to show our sorrow and to seek after the Lord with lives and hearts that are changed. Let's pray.